You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Following in the tracks of much of the developed world, Latin American societies are aging, and fast. And it seems that the governments aren't prepared for how falling fertility rates and rising life expectancy could hold their economies back. And really quite a lot of young people are getting their news on TikTok. I know, I know, hasn't anyone told them about the intelligence? Anyway, with all that TikTok news come inevitably TikTok news anchors. We meet some of them. But first... Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, rejected a ceasefire proposal from Hamas yesterday, instead promising his country victory in Gaza within months. Hamas's plan had called for a 135-day truce and the full withdrawal of Israeli forces. Mr. Netanyahu called those demands bizarre, stating that only total victory would ensure the future safety of Israel. It would seem another setback to peace during a war that threatens to destabilize the entire Middle East. But the hunt for a solution is still on. America's Secretary of State has been covering a tremendous amount of ground in the region, hoping that a deal can still be struck. Our diplomatic editor, Anton LaGuardia, has been with him throughout. I've been on the road with Antony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, on his fifth trip of the Middle East, trying to find a way out of the tragedy and disaster and catastrophe of the war in Gaza, hoping to turn that into an opportunity for peace. So before we get into the scope of the tour, let's start with what the Biden administration is trying to achieve here. They set out with three objectives. One is to get a extended pause, a longer pause in fighting than they had in November, in exchange for a hostage and prisoner swap. The pause in the fighting would allow them to get prisoners and captives out and would also allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. A second objective was to try and lay down the foundations of a broader regional peace deal and to link these two into essentially a grand plan whereby you go from pause to permanent ceasefire to 
a regional peace deal in which Saudi Arabia recognizes Israel as the biggest diplomatic prize, if you want, Saudi Arabia being the most important country. Israel recognizes a Palestinian state at long last, and America throws in assurances and other commitments to the two sides in order to make it all more palatable. And the third objective is to reassure countries in the region that the escalating war between America and Iran's regional allies in Syria, in Iraq, and in Yemen is not going to get out of hand. The Americans keep saying that they don't want escalation, even though they are every few days striking targets in those countries. And so you've been on the road with Secretary Blinken. What have the stops on the tour been this time? So there was one particular day where we were in four countries on the same day. His trip began in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, to meet Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and the de facto ruler of the country, who holds the biggest carrot, which is recognition of Israel, if a Palestinian state is on the way to being created. Then he went on to two stops to do with the hostages. First to Cairo to meet the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And there he was really talking about the contacts Egyptians have been having with Hamas about their response to a proposal for a hostage exchange. Uh, There didn't seem to be much news there. Then he went to Doha. Thank you for the, as always, very productive discussions that we had today. Uh, this evening uh, with the emir uh, and with the uh, the prime minister as well. Where the Qatari emir, as uh, Anthony Blinken walked in, said, I've just had an answer from Hamas to the proposal and uh, shared the details and discussed it with him briefly. And then on to Tel Aviv, bringing these various strands together to present to Israeli leaders, mainly Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, And then yesterday he had a side trip up to Ramallah, which is a drive from Jerusalem, uh, to go and see the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, on whom the Americans are placing pressure to show a readiness to reform and make itself fit to take over the Gaza Strip and prepare itself for statehood. But yesterday we saw Mr. Netanyahu reject the offer from Hamas, as serious though it may have been. I mean, do you read that as a failure of all of this diplomacy? No, but the tone was striking. It was quite scornful. The Israeli prime minister is under a huge amount of pressure. He has demonstrations on the streets from families of hostages wanting him to do more to get them out. And he's also got pressure within his own coalition from the right saying, you're not allowed to do a deal. If you do a deal that stops short of the complete destruction of Hamas, we will leave your coalition and essentially bring down your government. So the expectation was that the counter-offer by Hamas was not yet the final word and that the Israelis would reject it. Nevertheless, Netanyahu used words such as delusional and so on, which is not the language the Americans are using. We had uh, an opportunity today to discuss with the Israeli government the response that Hamas sent last night to the proposal that the United States, Qatar, and Egypt uh, had put together uh, to bring the remaining hostages home. Uh, They're saying there are some non-starters in that, but there's also room and space to negotiate. Uh, We do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. And the intriguing thing is that the Americans essentially need the acquiescence or help of a man whom the Israelis are trying to kill. And that is Yehi Ayash, leader of 
Hamas in Gaza, who is hiding in tunnels, and to whom messages must be brought, presumably by a succession of couriers who know their way through the tunnels. And what has it been like being in the room where all of these things are happening, deals are struck and rejected and what have you? Well, we're not allowed into the rooms themselves, Jason. We're allowed onto the various planes and convoys and hotels. And there's not a lot of sleep that is had, particularly for the harried staff who must make everything happen on time. Uh, I often wonder whether they even know what country they're in. You know, it is striking that just getting around can be complicated for an American Secretary of State. There are airplanes owned by the U.S. Air Force, but they're old and they break down. So his first plane broke down in Washington, so we had to wait for a backup plane. The backup plane came, we got to Riyadh, that broke down. So to go from Riyadh onto Cairo, we had to fly on a military transport plane, a C-17, and Anthony Blinken found a corner next to the cockpit where he could hide away while we sat on canvas seats on the side of this very noisy and rather cold transport. The meetings themselves seemed to pass off with little hitch. We were often left on the side of the road, on the side of the road in Cairo, outside the presidential palace, because there's not a lot of time to get from one venue to another. And yes, I mean, he goes in and out of marble, gilded palaces, into the prime minister's office in Jerusalem, to the Palestinian president's office. He has a vague view of the world outside his window, but he is not spending a lot of time with people imbibing the culture, not least because it's a time of war. So I think he has to be a little bit careful uh, about being seen to take things too lightly. It is a, a grim time with a lot of people getting killed and the prospect of very nasty escalation. And what's been your read on how the diplomacy is going, how welcome uh, the Americans are as interlocutors, how uh, deft they're being, whether or not they're getting the right brokers in to do the right things to, to push ahead on peace? I think he will probably get a hostage deal. It may take some more time, but I think that's likely. Whether that can link into a broader deal that he's also selling is much harder. And I suspect that they will run out of time. There's a desire to do it before the American elections because they feel that it's easier with a Democrat-controlled president. But I've had people tell me that broader piece will require a new Israeli government, a new Palestinian government, and a second Biden term. Anton, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Good to talk to you. Anton will also be speaking to my colleagues on Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics. This week's episode looks at how efforts to broker peace between Israel and Hamas feed into wider tensions in the whole of the Middle East, and it asks just how far America and Iran are from war. Now, that particular Checks and Balance episode is free to all, but to listen every week, you'll need to be a subscriber, either to our print or digital editions, or to the very simplest way to plug the fire hose of Economist audio directly into your ear canal, Economist Podcasts Plus. For this month and this month only, annual subscriptions are half off, just $2.06 American cents a month. You don't need me to tell you that that is a deal. Click on the link in the show notes or just search for Economist Podcasts. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual 
Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. An aging population is a challenge facing much of the world. But in Latin America, it's a particularly urgent problem. In about 28 years, the region's over 65 population will double from 10% to 20%, roughly half the time that it took the United States to do the same. Countries need to be prepared for what that means, though it seems many aren't. We're seeing a huge demographic shift in Latin America. Sarah Burke is The Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. Women are having fewer children. Fertility rates in some countries in the region are among the lowest in the world, far below replacement rates of 2.1. And old people are living longer. Young people have left or are leaving for jobs and opportunities elsewhere. All of this has huge implications for Latin American societies. And what are those implications? Government spending is one of the biggest ones. Pensions, for example, the cost of them is rising rapidly as there are more people drawing on them. Brazil's pension deficit is already 2.5% of GDP, and that's expected to rise to 5.9% by 2060. And the payouts are often so small they don't really cover enough for people. I spoke to several people who say the pensions that their parents get or they get barely covers medication or food, let alone anything else. And I guess that there are plenty of people in the region who don't have official pension plans. How does this play into the problem of a rapidly ageing population? You have lots of informal workers in Latin America. They have no pension for starters and they often have no retirement savings that they've personally made too. So in El Salvador, the central bank reckons that 82% of Salvadorians are neither paying into a pension nor saving independently for old age. The solution that governments often come up with is to give cash handouts for old people, often dubbed pensions or universal pensions. But these are often unaffordable and becoming more so as people live longer and the population skews towards older people. Almost a quarter of Mexico's federal budget will be spent on well-being pensions in 2024. And by 2050, the number of people potentially receiving this handout is expecting to double. And the other big cost we should talk about is obviously healthcare. Tell me more. How do countries in Latin America plan to pay for their healthcare? It's unclear how they plan to pay for it. Many countries in Latin America have public health care systems, but they don't have care services specifically targeting old people. There are very few public nursing homes and private ones are very expensive beyond the reach of almost all families. So traditionally, families look after each other. But that's becoming harder because women often do not want to care. It's always women who do it or cannot do so because they're working. I spoke to one university lecturer in Mexico City, for example. Her name was Noemi Dominguez Puñaro, and she says the government's taking advantage of her and other women. She had to move her 92-year-old mother in with her several years ago to care for her, and she's finding it very difficult. All of this extra spending on pensions and social handouts and healthcare is going to leave little space to invest in the young, and there are still a lot of young people in the region. Just how little are we talking here? So Latin American governments are expected to exceed revenues by about 3.8% by 2065, just on dealing with old people. And that's from research from the Inter-American Development Bank. To scale that, the gap is 1.7% in the European Union. 
this is a big issue because Latin America needs to be investing in its young more than it does. Education, for example, is really not up to scratch. Before the pandemic, Latin American 15-year-olds were on average three years behind their peers in the OECD on science, maths and English tests. And they need more nurseries, which also requires the investment of public funds. And Sarah, what should countries do about this? They need to make up for lost workers. Encouraging people to have more babies isn't something that many people advocate. It's hard to do and people should obviously be free to do what they want. More realistically, one obvious way to try and tackle this problem of ageing is to delay retirement. So Brazil, Uruguay and Costa Rica are already raising the retirement age. Brazil began raising it from the mid-50s, which is incredibly low, in 2019. And it's estimated that this will save $200 billion by 2029. But the age will need to go up. Another way is to get more women working. The female labour participation rate in Latin America is 51%, which is lower than many other places. And finally, another way would be to bring in more immigrants and convince potential emigrants not to leave the country. But this requires bigger picture, broader changes like improving economic growth, dealing with crime, providing more opportunities. And then obviously it's also about making the workforce that does exist more productive. And how so? Latin America's productivity, which is an economic term measuring how much output you have per worker, is the second lowest of any region after the Middle East. And it requires long-term investment in things like education, so workers have the skills they need. It needs care systems if you want to expand and improve the workforce, and the use of technology too. The university lecturer I spoke with, Noemi, has had to go part-time to care for her mother, And as evidenced by the dwindling birth rate, women in Latin America increasingly have choice about when and how many children to have. And they deserve those same options when it comes to caring for ageing family members too. All this might just help Latin America start to face up to the challenge of rapid ageing. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ari. The biggest news of the week translated for Gen Z. Good morning and welcome to the news on TikTok. Holly Berman is a social media editor at The Economist. Before we dive into what it means to translate the news for Gen Z, here are some more of the headlines. Gay news, you will not believe what London just did. That's Josh Helfgott. His five and a half million followers tune in for LGBT news updates. Coming up next... 37-year-old Alex Kellerman, otherwise known as Kellerman Comedy, reads details of the recent wildfires in Colombia. Colombia is fucking on fire. Thankfully, from his home in Los Angeles. These videos come from a group of amateur anchors who post short news updates to TikTok. Many of them have huge followings, and more and more young Americans are choosing to get their news from them. Holly, tell me more about the people making these TikToks. Yes, so they might be amateur anchors, but they do take the business of delivering the news very seriously. They just like to do it in ways that are more relaxed or fun. So you've got Alex Kellerman, who dresses up as this bedraggled anchor every day to film his news roundups. I'm your host, Kellerman, and here's some of the shit going on in the world today. He told me that he got this idea from wanting to have the news delivered to him in a way that would have resonated with his teenage self. And he said that he found the format 
to have overnight success after he accidentally uploaded a test video back in September about the floods in Libya. And I had almost 100,000 new followers overnight and hundreds of comments and DMs from people saying, like, you, I need you to do this more. Please do this more. Please he doesn't describe himself as a journalist. However, he does claim to have been one of the first people to have reported the story on TikTok. Personally, I'm more interested in watching someone who's fun to watch than a stuffy, monotone news reporter. These TikTokers are presenters, researchers and producers rolled into one. And their uploads caricature the traditional news reports that we're so used to seeing. They aggregate them and actually they're competing with them. So one TikToker known as News Daddy or Dylan Page has more followers than the flagship TikTok accounts of the New York Times, Washington Post and the Daily Mail combined. Even the creators that I spoke to have over half a billion likes on all of their videos between them. So they have these huge followings, their videos have lots of likes. But how many people are actually using these TikTok anchors as their main source of news? Well, this is the important part. So back in 2020, 9% of Americans aged between 18 to 29 told a Pew poll that they regularly got their news on the platform. But by 2023, that number had risen to 32%. And these TikTok anchors are actually thinking really hard about how to capture this generation's attention. So I chatted to Jessica Burbank. She's a creator and freelance journalist, and she's grown this really loyal Gen Z audience. So that's what I wanted to do with the biggest news of the week translated for Gen Z. Make it a little entertaining and be myself. It has to be short, it has to be fast. And she says that she translates the biggest stories of the week to them by taking away the nonsense. It's the biggest news of the week. No one wants to work anymore. McCarthy is voluntarily leaving Congress. That's this guy. Okay, apart from the fact that they're short and snappy, why are these videos proving so successful? So I spoke to another creator called Julia Carr. She makes these videos about celebrity news, crime news. And she says that the popularity of these videos has given her some sort of level of respect from the people that follow her or interact with the videos. So she's told me that she's actually had access to interview the people that are linked to the stories that she makes her videos about. And this is interesting because these TikTokers are free from editorial processes or executive boards. And therefore, they believe that they possess something that mainstream news outlets, in their opinion, don't have, which is authenticity. Most traditional news is devoid of emotion. So that's Josh Helfgott, who I mentioned earlier. He's the one that makes the clips about LGBT news stories. Um, I believe that what catches my audience's attention is when they see my passion behind the story. Publishers around the world are very aware of this shift. The Economist is on TikTok. We launched on there over a year ago, making videos all the time. And more than half of publishers surveyed by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism say that they plan to put more effort into putting their videos on TikTok this year. Right, so these influencers themselves are effectively influencing the news outlets. Yes, so one thing that's really interesting, among these creators I spoke to, they expressed the sentiment that they weren't getting the full story from mainstream outlets. And I think this reflects a broader sentiment that's going on in America about trust in American mass media. So there was this Gallup report that found the lowest levels of trust in American mass media since 2016. And it seems that what these creators have merely figured out to do is how to tune people back in to stories that outlets are already reporting on, but just in ways that feel more real and relevant to young TikTok users. And that can be a good thing. And, you know, TikTokers are going to have a lot to talk about with this very busy election year ahead, and we can expect to see a lot more of them co-opting the headlines that are going to come out over the next year or so. 
Okay, but the thing is with actual news organizations, we have a pretty thorough editorial process. I mean, The Economist, we have a whole team of fact checkers just to make sure that we uphold standards and, well, tell the truth. Holly, should we be worried that more people are relying on these self-professed news anchors who don't have these guardrails in place? Yes, I think that's a really good point. It's important to consider these TikTokers are individual creators. They're not classified, as far as we know, as news accounts. So while it's helpful to get your news from them and it can inform you about the world, I do think it's very important to continue to get your news from a varied range of sources. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aura. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.